This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're beginning our dive into chapter 6, which is a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. We've spent several weeks now learning about how to deal with conflict. There's a lot of it around, so that makes sense. Now, as if Jesus hasn't meddled enough in our lives, he moves on to talk about giving. This can be a touchy subject. Consciously or unconsciously, we might consider our money off-limits. It's how we pay the bills and survive. But subjects of the kingdom have no area that's off-limits to God. And this, too, is something he asks us to surrender to his control. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Now, every once in a while, I receive requests for financial donations from both Christian and non-Christian organizations. And some of them offer me perks in exchange for my gift Some are more ingenious than others. For example, some of them will offer to put me in the friendship club if I give a certain amount. And if I double that gift, they will offer to place me in the president's club. Now, there's nothing wrong with expressing gratitude tangibly to a financial partner. I just don't like the appeal to public recognition. And I'll tell you why. If I donate money to be noticed, my giving amounts to nothing more than an investment on public image. Or if you are giving to someone or to an organization for the purpose of manipulating or controlling, you'd better call it lobbying more than generosity. And if you give for the purpose of negotiating a better public image, you are doing exactly what Christ condemns in the next session of the Sermon on the Mount here, chapter 6, Pharisaical righteousness, which is insufficient to get to heaven. Remember Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus says, Subjects of the kingdom of heaven should have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And tragically, some believers will use some of these principles Let me give you an example of that. Shortly after the birth of the church, a sorcerer who came to Christ by the name of Simon was so impressed by the miracles of the apostles that he wanted part in it. Luke tells us the story, Acts 8, verses 18 through 21. And the narrative says this, When Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this authority as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And thus he pinpoints the problem of hypocritical giving, which is the theme of the next portion of the Sermon on the Mount we're going to talk about here. The problem is a proud heart, a heart that is not right before God. This former sorcerer wanted to impress people with his generosity and religiosity, which in his mind would be evident by demonstration of apostolic power. But Peter reminded him, you have no part in this ministry. First of all, you don't qualify to be an apostle, obviously, and your heart is not in the right place. Now, God expects something different from us, church. He expects genuine, humble, and quiet generosity, which produces heavenly rewards. 
We're going to talk about the standard of generosity that God expects from us, which is part of that righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And we will conclude that this divine generosity or quiet generosity or genuine generosity, we could call, has little to do with the amount you give of your resources and everything to do with the motivation of the heart. So with that in mind, let's read Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. He says this, Jesus Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that you may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So here we have the precepts of our majestic Savior. Remember, in the Gospel of Matthew, we know Jesus as the majestic Savior because He presents Christ as the King of the Jews, the King of Kings. And here we have the first session of discourse from Jesus Christ. There are five of those in the entire Gospel of Matthew, and they are sprinkled in between narrative. We are now a chapter into the Sermon on the Mount. We are starting chapter 6. And the first thing He talks about here is the practice of proper righteousness. Remember, He talked about the righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees and their deficient theology. And now he's talking about the fact that we are to beware so that we don't practice that deficient theology. Deficient theology leads to bad practice. And Jesus Christ says, beware of this. So we're going to see here how subjects of the kingdom of heaven should practice genuine generosity. And by the way, we're going to conclude here also that generosity is something that is assumed. If you're a member of the kingdom of heaven, God expects you to practice generosity. We, we will, I'll tell you why in a moment here. But before we do that, let's break down this paragraph according to the format in which Jesus presents these truths. There are two portions here. The first one we're going to call the exhortation against hypocrisy. Chapter 1, verse 1 rather. The exhortation against hypocrisy. Now, having commanded his audience to pursue the righteousness that is sufficient to get to heaven, Jesus cautions them about proper practice of such an elevated position. Remember, as subjects of the kingdom of heaven, Christians or born-again believers in Christ, we are in an elevated position before God. And at a first glance, you may get the impression that he contradicts what he said in chapter 5, verse 16. Remember, he said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. And here he says, beware, don't practice your righteousness before men. So if you read this not carefully enough, you will come to the conclusion that he is contradicting himself. But let me show you that this is not the case, how these two verses harmonize perfectly. Now, as subjects of the kingdom of heaven, believers in Christ sojourn the earth. We are citizens of the U.S., the U.K., Brazil, China, or in the case of Paul, Rome. And he says this in Philippians 3, verse 20, our true citizenship is in heaven. And what he means by that is that in the meantime, God has assigned each one of us a temporary earthly citizenship where we can live our lives publicly. And especially now when everyone has a camera in their pockets with their phone, it is impossible to not be on display. Jesus expects us to practice our Christianity publicly. There's no such thing. We cannot live the Christian life in secret. People need to see what Christ is like. So that's what his point is here. But here's the catch. We must do it for the honor of God, not for self-aggrandizement. For the honor of God, we must live in such a way that people will look at our lives and say, what a great God this person has. And I want that Savior. 
Not for the people to look at us and say, wow, what a benevolent person he is. And that is the problem against which Christ warns in verse 1 of chapter 6. In chapter 5, you will remember that he makes the case that true Christianity flows from a transformed heart. And he mentions several specific issues of the heart. Now, from the inside out, our Christian life is lived from a transformed heart and permeates every one of our thoughts and actions. Therefore, subjects of the kingdom of heaven cannot and should not hide from the observant eyes of the world. How else are we going to make disciples of Christ other than obviously telling them about Jesus Christ? But how else will people witness what a transformed life is all about? Here's the catch. Superior righteousness must never seek the approval of men. And if we're going to borrow another figure of speech from Christ here, we can state this truth like this. And I'll say it slowly in case you're taking notes. Because subjects of the kingdom of heaven are the salt of the earth, you remember that from Matthew 5, verse 13, we season the world, not for the taste buds of people, but for the pleasure of our Father who is in heaven. Let me say this again. Because subjects of the kingdom of heaven are the salt of the earth, according to Matthew 5, verse 13, we season the world not for the taste buds of people, but for the approval of our Father who is in heaven. And again, let me point out to you one more reason why the words of Christ are so challenging to our proud hearts. We desire to satisfy the taste buds of people. That comes naturally for us. Because again, it's our flesh. We have a sinful nature. And also because just like everybody else, we long for acceptance. And that's the point. One of the reasons we want to please people is because we long for acceptance. And one way that Jesus is confronting his audience with this is don't do that with your giving. Don't practice your generosity so that people can see you and tell you how great you are. But the problem is we long for acceptance as people. God wired us this way. We desire community. And that's, that's not a bad thing necessarily. We can make it sinful. But the problem is we misapply something that is good. God wired humans to desire community. And our God-given urge for approval is so strong that if we're not careful, if we don't steward that well, we will form opinions based on the potential for belonging rather than conviction of truth. And that is the problem. If we are not careful with the God-given desire for community that we have, if we're not good stewards of that, we will form our opinions based on the potential for acceptance rather than conviction of truth. And that is the problem. We are so afraid of rejection that we pursue popularity. But what we really want is the built-in sense of security that popularity has. And that's the problem. It's an illusion because it's only temporary. And tragically... People seek to meet a genuine need in the wrong source. And many believers do it through their giving, through hypocritical giving. The problem, the first one that Jesus is pointing out here. But we are reminded here from the text, from the words of Christ, that subjects of the kingdom of heaven do not live for the acclaim of others. We understand that God is the only one who meets that genuine need for acceptance because he made us in his image. And let me remind you that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who exist eternally in perfect fellowship, perfect communion. And therefore, because we are made in the image of God, we long for that communion with other people, of course, and obviously communion with God. Therefore, every other alternative 
Every time we seek to meet that need for acceptance, fellowship, and communion outside of God, every one of those alternatives falls short, whether it's a gang, a political party, a fan club, a movement, or a cult, falls short. Some of these things are good, except the cult, obviously. <laughs> they are secondary for fellowship, and they don't provide meaningful, joyful, enduring, and everlasting fellowship, and that's the key here everlasting fellowship because those of us who are members of the kingdom of God, we start our fellowship here and that fellowship is going to last through eternity. Now, what breaks our fellowship in the meantime is our sin because we're sinful people. Sometimes we hurt each other and sometimes we fail to forgive one another and that's the problem here. But when we get to heaven, there's going to be none of that because we will have been glorified, transformed completely. Our salvation will find its final aspect. Therefore, there's not going to be a hindrance to our fellowship. Now, let me remind you of the Beatitudes again, because again, Christ talks about the blessedness of being a part of his family. Now, if you are in Christ, he has already pronounced you blessed beyond your ability to compute. Paul says in Ephesians 1, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. In other words, we already have everything at our disposal to enjoy a meaningful life here in, in terms of fellowship. We don't need to go look for acceptance outside of Christ, outside of the body of Christ. Of course, God has given us the desire for family, the desire for communion, for, for fellowship, but we don't need to try to fabricate an image through our giving, through our generosity. In order to be accepted, in order to get a plaque that will accumulate dust until God destroys everything here on this earth. So when we look at the Beatitudes, we are reminded that the kingdom of heaven belongs to us. You, my friend, as a member of the kingdom of heaven, you will be comforted no matter how bad things get here on this earth, according to Matthew 5 verse 4. You will inherit the earth, the heaven and earth that will be made new. Your desire for righteousness will finally be satisfied, again, no matter how unjust life gets here or unjust. You will receive mercy, according to Matthew 5 verse 7, and you will see the face of God without the fear of being consumed by His holiness because you will have been transformed totally. You Your sin nature will have been annihilated. There was not going to be any sin in you. Do you see now, church, the foolishness of fishing for notoriety? How could you even compare the admiration of people with the blessedness of belonging to Christ? Furthermore, if you are in Him, if you are in Christ, you have an inheritance that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount later on, that moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. In fact, let me read to you 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4. He talks about that inheritance that we have, that the Father has reserved for us in heaven. He says this, Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. See, why would we give up the excellent for the average, the eternal for the temporal, the heavenly for the earthly, just for an attaboy from the world or for positive Google reviews? It makes no sense. And Jesus says, beware. Practice your righteousness in front of people, yes, but for the glory of God, even if doing so invites the rejection of people. Why? Because the Father has something much better for you. It's reserved in heaven for you, the Bible says. But you want to hear some good news? Even in the present, God has something much better for us, for those of us who are in Christ, who are members of the kingdom of heaven. He offers in the present something much better than the approval of men to meet our needs for acceptance. 
You know what it is? It's called the fellowship of the saints. Acts 2, verse 42. The body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. The flock of the good shepherd. John 10, verse 11. The household of faith. Galatians 6, verse 10. These are biblical descriptions and metaphors. And there are several more in scripture. But these are biblical descriptions and metaphors about the community of imperfect people who prefer one another and to carry each other's burden. A group of sinners saved by grace, redeemed, renewed, reborn, regenerated, heaven bound and united in the bonds of peace and love. See, that's why it's foolishness to go seek the approval of sinful people. Because we already have the approval that we need. And that's the approval of the Father. If we are in Christ, He has approved us on the merit of His Son, Jesus Christ. Not on the merit of anything we can do. So Jesus then exhorts His listeners in verse 1. We're still in verse 1 here, chapter 6. Because the scribes and Pharisees practice hypocritical righteousness. See, he warns them in chapter 5 about bad theology, changing scripture to fit whatever they want it to say, and that leads to hypocritical righteousness. And therefore, Jesus warns them about this. Their deficient theology led to something called theatrics. We know exactly what that word means, theatrics. Now, Matthew used the Greek word from which we get the word theater in here when he is quoting Jesus Christ. Uh, Again, it's possible that Jesus gave that sermon in Hebrew, but Matthew is recording everything in the lingua franca of the time Greek, the Koine Greek, and he used the word from which we get the English theater, translated to be seen. So we can paraphrase this sentence like this. Don't practice theatrical religion. That's the point. Don't practice theatrical righteousness, Jesus is saying. And the reason is because some people in Jesus' audience wanted to be viewed as pious, great religious figures, the proverbial holier than thou. In fact, that expression comes from the Bible, in case you were wondering. Have you ever heard that expression, holier than thou? It comes from Scripture. Many people misuse it. But let me quote to you the exact context of that expression. And that expression reveals, again, we use it today without knowing it, but what that means is that it reveals God's view of theatrical religion. That's in Isaiah 65, verses 2 through 5. And this is what God says. These are the words of of, of God. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good. Following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, talking about paganism, who eat swine's flesh and broth of unclean meat in their pots, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than thou. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day, Jesus says. So what we understand from Scripture here, and Jesus helps us understand this by clarifying everything in the Sermon on the Mount. Not that Isaiah 65 is not clear, but it's the progressive nature of Revelation here. We understand that people who practice theatrical devotion irritate the nostrils of God. To use the anthropomorphism of this passage here in Isaiah, we irritate God with our hypocrisy when we practice righteousness in order to be perceived as holier than we are to people. That's the point. Instead, God desires from us the sweet aroma of genuine spirituality, genuine righteousness, practical religion, practical righteousness that comes from a transformed heart. You see, it's from the inside out, not from the outside. And it's the easiest thing to do to convince someone to change their behavior, threaten people with jail time 
or, or punishment, and they'll change behavior. The gospel addresses the heart. Okay, the real problem here is an unregenerate heart. And Jesus Christ says this, Practice your righteousness like a person with a regenerate heart because that's who we are in Christ. If we are members of the kingdom of God, we are regenerate people, which means we are born again. That's what it means to be regenerated, to be generated again, which means we have a new heart, a transformed, a renewed heart. And that needs to be translated in our spiritual disciplines. The first one that he addresses here is our giving. Then later on, he will talk about how to pray genuinely and how to fast. We're going to cover all of those in the weeks to come because that's what Jesus addresses here. So we're just following the great sermon ever preached, the great homily ever delivered, the Sermon on the Mount. So I do not dare try to improve upon what Jesus is doing. My job is to follow him in what he talks about here. So we can summarize the first verse like this. Quit acting. That's what Jesus says. Quit acting. I'm not interested in theatrics, and I'm not saying that theatrics, if, if you're an actor, <laughs> Jesus is not condemning your profession. That's not the point here. And we will talk about that when we talk about hypocrisy, the exact meaning of that word in the context that Jesus used it. The point here is quit acting in your religion, in your practical righteousness. Get your heart right is what he's talking about. And he offers himself to the people as the only one who can transform hearts. That's the point. He tells them, you need a transformed heart. And here I am offering you a transformed heart, the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And that's your only one that is acceptable before the eyes of God. So keep that first verse in your mind, maybe highlighted in your scripture, because that serves as the launch pad for everything else he's going to talk about in chapter 6. That's the, the main idea that governs everything that he's talking about for the next 18 verses at least. And that leads us to the second point here, according to the format that Jesus uses. Not only he talks about the exhortation against hypocrisy, but now he moves on in verses 2 through 4 to talk about the instruction concerning generosity. So what we have here is an exhortation against hypocrisy. And now the instruction concerning generosity, verses 2 through 4. Now, every time we talk about generosity, people may feel, oh, wait a minute, that comes the money pitch. I, I need to go take a vacation now. Or the pastor's going to talk about giving and that's the Sunday I'm going to take off. That's not what I'm talking about because the context in which Jesus talks about here has nothing to do with giving to the church. He's talking about giving to the poor, okay? He selects three demonstrations of righteousness in verses 1 through 18, okay? In fact, you should note that, circle verse 5, because that signals the change of subject here. He's talking about prayer. And then in verse 16, he talks about fasting. So you, you should circle those verses and understand that generosity here, or giving to the poor, is the first of three that he uses to make the point of practical righteousness, because these were problem areas the listeners of Jesus Christ were facing, and we face as well. And why do we know that? Because first of all, it's just observe our lives. But second, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and more relevant than today's newspaper. We all struggle with genuine generosity. So the words of Christ are water to our thirsty souls because it leads us to the right path. It, they instruct us on how to live a life that is pleasing to God. So again, we need to distinguish this type of giving here from tithing and offerings given to the church, although the, the pattern is the same. But Jesus is talking about the spontaneous giving that you would do in order to assist someone in need. He's talking about an action that is driven by compassion for the needy, the giving to, to the poor, because you are compassionate with a fellow human being who is in need. And by the way, let me point out to you that twice Jesus utters the sentence, when you give to the poor. Circle that word when, not if. 
He's saying when you give to the poor. Twice in the same paragraph here. And that tells us much here, church. It tells us that he expects us to do this. What he's saying is in your Christian life, you will practice generosity. Generosity is a way of life for those of us who are subjects of the kingdom of heaven. We are to be generous people. That's why he says when you give to the poor, not if. But he's assuming that that's going to be a constant in our lives. As members of the kingdom of heaven, he expects that we will display this kind of kindness in obedience to Deuteronomy 15 verse 11. For example, when God says, for the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you saying, you shall freely open your heart to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. So God expects us to help the poor and the needy in the land because there will always be poor people among us, people in need. And therefore he commands, you shall freely open your heart to your brother. So this is not even a debate whether or not I should give every once in a while according to my conscience, of course, according to how God leads. When you give, he says, this is how you're supposed to do it. Also, You may remember when we talked about the book of Ruth, the law of gleaning. That was God's way to provide for the poor. Also, Jesus expects us to follow the principle of a generous heart. For example, in Proverbs 19, verse 17, the scripture says, One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deeds. You see? If we are gracious to the poor, according to Proverbs here in 19 verse 17, we are lending to God, meaning God will repay, God will always reward. And Jesus elaborates on that here by comparing heavenly rewards with earthly rewards. We'll stop there for today and pick up next week. Meanwhile, if you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.